Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, you're listening to Talking France, a podcast made by the local and supported by our members. We're already into the month of June. How time flies, or comme le temps passe vite, as they say in French. In this week's episode, we will find out why thousands of bottles of American beer were destroyed on the orders of France's champagne industry. And also, what a spat between the French president and prime minister says about the threat of the far right taking power in France. We will also hear about a new travel link between France and Ireland, new train options between France and Germany, and indeed new rail services around France that will interest travelers. And France counts the most second homes in all of Europe. But it's not always straightforward buying and owning a résidence secondaire in France. And they come with extra costs and taxes, particularly in certain parts of the country. We'll explain all. We'll also look at the question of whether you need to carry ID in France at all times and a new government plan to merge the Carte Vitale health card with French ID cards, for those that have them, at least. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and I'll be joined by editor of the local France, Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and politics expert John Litchfield. We should start by welcoming you back. Jen, you've been away for a few weeks. Where have you been again? I was back touring the US with my partner. We had a lovely time. With your French boyfriend, and how did he uh, find the food over there? Uh, yeah, he, I think he enjoyed it. I would say he had an average of about maybe 10 burgers for the three weeks that we were in the Ten burgers in three weeks. That's pretty yeah, good going. Yeah, large meat intake. <laughs> I'm sure he's glad to be back home anyway. Brilliant. Good to have you back, Jen. Right, on we go. Should we start with champagne? Bubbly? France's champagne industry is notoriously litigious when it comes to enforcing the rules around their specially protected name. Lawyers are quick to bring legal action against anyone who uses the famous trademark illegally, and tensions have long bubbled away between makers of champagne and other sparkling wines who've dared to call themselves champagne. But it's not just rival bubbly that champagne's eagle-eyed lawyers are ready to pounce on, it's also beer. Jen, thousands of cans of one of your favourite beers, Miller High Life, were recently crushed at the behest of these lawyers. This just seems so needless, Jen. Tell us more. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, Belgian custom authorities and the Comité Champagne in France ordered that 2,352 cans of Miller High Life beer be destroyed because they qualified as counterfeit goods when they entered the port of Antwerp. And the reason for that categorization is because Miller High Life beer cans all have an, an inscription of their nickname, the Champagne of Beers. And to the Champagne Committee, this is considered an infringement on their trademark. Now, it's worth noting that Miller High Life doesn't export their beer to the EU, and these have been privately shipped. So they were meant to go on to Germany before being destroyed at customs. But the gist is that Champagne is an AOC, or Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée, which is a geographically controlled product. And this also means that the word champagne is trademarked. And the only product that can be called champagne has to be the sparkling wine from the Champagne region of France. Jenny, are you wearing a Miller High Life cap? I am. Is this a sign of whose side you're on in this row? I have to say, I mean, I have to side with Milwaukee. My family is all from Milwaukee, so... 
Obviously, I'm going to defend a Milwaukee beer. Okay. Emma, have you ever tasted champagne and thought, wow, this tastes like Miller Lite? Uh, no, that would be a, a very bad champagne. I mean, that's right. No one can surely confuse Miller High Life beer with champagne. What's going on here, Jen? Well, it's all about trademark. And the trademark doesn't really have to do with whether or not the product is is trying to play off as champagne itself. It has to do with any unauthorized use of the champagne name. So basically, this champagne committee, they care so much about protecting the product that they've even helped train customs teams so that they can better identify whether products bearing the champagne name are genuine or counterfeit. And this is not the first time that the champagne industry's lawyers have gone after something completely unrelated to the sparkling wine. So in 2014, they actually sued an Australian wine critic and educator who was known as Champagne Jane and accused her of misleading the public as she had several social media accounts under the name of Champagne Jane. And as we mentioned, Champagne is trademarked. And just recently, Talking France podcast listener Ricky J. Mark pointed out to us on Twitter that 35,000 bottles of soda called Couronne Fruit Champagne, a popular Haitian soft drink, were also destroyed by customs agents because the European Union also found that they violated that copyright. Okay, now look, Champagne has had a long and fraught history with the US in general, which has been one of the few countries not to officially recognise the Champagne designation. A 2006 EU-US agreement barred California producers from naming any new brands Champagne, but ones created before that date were allowed to continue. Now, according to Forbes, some nearly... 80 million bottles of American sparkling wine are produced and labelled with the word champagne each year, obviously much to the annoyance of the champagne region. Jen, and they also had a run-in with Apple, right? (laughs) Yeah, actually, Apple teased in 2013 that they were going to name their new gold iPhone the champagne-coloured iPhone, but then the champagne industry's lawyers threatened a lawsuit, so they did not go ahead with that. (laughs) Wow, they really are active. And it's not just champagne where there are trademark issues. The famous Normandy cheese camembert was at the centre of a 12-year legal battle in France over what type of milk can be used for the cheese in order to qualify for the AOP. Jen, just explain how strict these rules are when it comes to appellation origine contrôlée or protégée in France and the EU. Well, the rules are really strict about protecting the AOCs and AOPs across Europe. And that has to do with the fact that getting that special title involves how the product is made, where it's made, and every single step in between. So as we mentioned earlier, it's probably not a surprise that Miller High Life beer was thrown out, seeing as it didn't go through the same intricate process that real champagne does. But to show just how attentive to detail these AOP and AOC rules are, last year, some Salah cheese producers, which is an AOP from the Auvergne region, had to lose their title for a period of time due to drought. Basically, their cows were not able to graze on the grass in that area for quite a while after the land went dry with no rain. And that meant that the cows did not meet those strict feeding requirements necessary for them to be able to produce the proper milk that would eventually qualify them as salar cheese later on. Wow, unbelievably strict, but worth it for those local regional producers. Thank you, Jen. Now, since Brexit and Britain's departure from the EU, Ireland and France have made efforts to deepen their ties, and it appears to be paying off with both trade and travel links hugely increased in recent years. One of those travel links is a unique combined ferry train ticket that is the fruition of a deal between Dublin and Paris. 
Emma, this sounds like a really interesting travel option. Tell us more. Yeah, basically, this is a deal that the French and Irish government have reached, and it's to create a combined ferry and train ticket to encourage people to travel between France and Ireland this summer using public transport. So you will be able to buy a ticket that includes a train journey from somewhere in France to either Roscoff or Cherbourg, the port, French ports, a ferry from those to either Dublin, Cork or Rosslare in Ireland, and then an onward train journey in Ireland or vice versa, obviously. They still haven't announced how you actually buy this, but the French and Irish transport ministers signed the deal last week and they said the ticket would come into effect over the summer. Obviously, these routes are already in place, so you can still do that journey separately, just buying your ticket separately at the moment. But the idea of this sort of combined ticket is to boost tourism between the two countries. So that's more for sort of passengers. But both Cherbourg and Roscoff ports have also seen a big boost in commercial traffic. And that, of course, is thanks to Brexit. Uh, Emma, you mentioned Roscoff. The Irish have actually opened an honorary consulate there. At the time, James Brown, the Irish minister, talked of a Breton bounce, given that Brittany is Ireland's closest EU region. And Stéphane Perrin, vice president of the Brittany region, playfully welcomed the boost in ties with the words, thank you, Boris Johnson. But Emma, there is a natural reason, of course, why trade between Ireland and France has increased. Um, yeah, I mean, it is Brexit. Taking goods between France and the UK is now massively more complicated than it was because since Brexit, this involves crossing a non-EU border. So that increases requirement for all sorts of paperwork from veterinary certificates if you're bringing in meat and cheese to a cane if you're bringing in tools for work and thousands of other paperwork requirements. Ireland, of course, remains in the EU, so many exporters are simply switching their routes to go directly from France to Ireland. The journey is a bit longer, but they benefit from frictionless borders and the EU single market. So since Brexit, total freight between France and Ireland has trebled, and sailings have increased fivefold from Rosslare, the Irish port, and they've doubled from Cherbourg in France. And sort of on the back of this, there's been this flurry of kind of French-Irish diplomacy and sort of soft power initiatives, uh, of which the single train ferry ticket is just the latest example. And it was signed into effect by the French Transport Minister Clément Bone, uh, who incidentally has his own links with Ireland. He did his Erasmus year in Dublin, which is why he speaks such good English. Interesting. Now it's a good time, I think, to bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield, who joined us on the line from Normandy. I asked John, to what extent Britain's loss in terms of trade and ties and travel with France was Ireland's gain? Well, I should declare an interest first of all. My wife is from Dublin and my daughter yeah. lives in Dublin and I use the, the direct link between Normandy and Dublin sometimes by sea. Yes, in some ways it has been, but you have to remember that there have been huge problems for Ireland from Brexit. I mean, something like 70% of the Irish economy is tied to the British economy still, even 100 years after it, the country got its independence. And so, you know, in, in terms of, of the huge tangle and mess that Brexit's called in, t in terms of trade relations between Britain and the rest of the EU, Ireland is really in the front line and has been damaged in many ways by that. The problems it's caused with, uh, in, about the border within with our, in Ireland as well. But on the other hand, in many ways, I mean, I saw something like the trade between Cherbourg to Dublin and to uh, Rosslare has increased by three times uh, freight traffic, three times since since Brexit, 300%. And Brittany Ferries overall says its trade has uh, with Ireland has increased by 70% even in the last year. So yes, there's been an enormous increase in the number of crossings. There's even now one going to be made or maybe started already between Dublin and Dunkirk, which is a very unlikely mm. freight crossing, but it is for, for Belgian, German, Dutch trucks that don't want to have to go through Britain and all the problems that that causes. They come all the way through France and go to Cherbourg and then across to, to Dublin, which is about... 10 or 11 hour very pleasant voyage or a terrible voyage depending on, on the weather 
So it's extraordinary that Ireland and France have become neighbours in a way that they haven't been ever before in that quite that way. Also, the advantage, I think there has been a noticeable number, a shift in, in school trips um, that used to go to Britain for the kids to be exposed to English. Whether they learn much English is another question, but they used to go. But I noticed that the college down here in the valley where I live in Normandy used to always go just across to Hampshire or somewhere uh, for their school trip. But this year, all the kids went off to Ireland, you know, mm. which is quite a trek for them. But also they went to Cherbourg on the boat, so it wasn't so difficult for them. So, yeah, I think that, that Ireland has gained a lot in terms of, of school trips and, and other advantages as well. But I think it's, one shouldn't forget that it has been a big problem for Ireland in other ways. Indeed. Thank you, John. Finally, Emma, just to round this off, is there any other train news listeners should know about? Uh, yes, there's loads. You uh, you know I love a train journey. Similar to the French-Irish train ticket initiative, there's also a Franco-German initiative that will offer reduced price train tickets for young people travelling between the two countries this summer. It's aimed under 25s and the idea is just to encourage links, encourage travel between the two countries. For those of us who are a little bit older than, uh, than 25, there's also night trains. France is expanding its night train route on both domestic and international journeys uh, and it's catering to people who kind of want to avoid flying for environmental reasons but might also kind of like the the fun of going to sleep in one city waking up the next morning in another this summer there are going to be eight domestic train routes in france they run from paris to the french cities of toulouse nice briançon which is in the alps albi in southwest france argel-sur-mer which is on the mediterranean coast axe-les-termes in the pyrenees Cannes, or lourdes I would maybe recommend Albi out of these. It's a really cute little town in the southwest, maybe a bit less well-known than the others. Fantastic cathedral, no? Yes, a very weird cathedral mm. with a very strange story to it. Tour de France, yeah. Yep. And it was also the uh, the birthplace of the painter Toulouse-Lautrec. So there's a fabulous museum all about his life with loads of his paintings in it. It's all really right. good. But although I think I might try the Nice one this summer, I have a trip to Nice planned. So I'm thinking I might get the night train. This week I've been combining researching the podcast and booking my holiday. So it's been a very uh, efficient week. Anyway, moving on. On an international level, the European night train network is also expanding. And available to book this summer is Paris to Vienna. Uh, it takes 14 hours in total. Prices start at €29, Euro, although for that you are going to be sitting in a chair all night. If you want a couchette or a sleeping cabin, they start at €49, or you can pay more to get a whole compartment to yourself or a first-class compartment. And if you're a woman travelling alone, all of the SNCF options have women-only cabins. Brilliant. Thank you, Emma. Now, moving on, this week saw a rare public disagreement between President Emmanuel Macron and his Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, on the subject of Philippe Pétain. Who was he and why are France's top politicos arguing about a man who's been dead for 70 years? Emma, over to you. So, Philippe Pétain, he's the man who was the head of state during the French occupation by the Nazis during World War II. So he was a, a World War I war hero. He ended up leading the French army. And after the First World War, he entered politics in about the 1930s. He had some fairly low-key roles before being appointed deputy prime minister in 1940, as the Germans were advancing on France. And after the invasion, it was Pétain who formally requested an armistice with Germany. And he then became the head of state in the Vichy government, which nominally ruled France under the control of the Germans during the period of the occupation. He essentially got that position because he was a national hero and he was seen as a kind of unifying figure who all French people of all political persuasions could support. But once he was in power, he quickly began enacting his own very right-wing domestic agenda. He actively collaborated with the Nazis and in some cases he actually went further than the Germans had ordered, particularly in the case of anti-Semitic legislation and the eventual deportation of Jews living in France to concentration camps. After the war, he was sentenced to death for treason, but his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment and he died in 1951 at the age of 95. 
No, that's who he is. And as you say, uh, he's a name that figures a lot in France and not always, or not in a positive context. But why has he been in the news this week? Why are the government arguing about him? So this week, the Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne, who incidentally is the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, she described Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National Party as the heirs of Pétain. She was basically saying she was concerned about the normalisation of the dangerous ideology of the far right. Emmanuel Macron, on the other hand, told a cabinet meeting at which Bourne was present that the far right should be discredited on political rather than moral grounds. And he was basically saying that politicians who oppose the far right should be engaging with policy arguments, not, and I quote, using words from the 90s which no longer work. So they're basically, they're both wanting to oppose the far right, but they're um, in opposition about how they go about doing that. But I think the very fact that they're arguing in public about this shows how deep the worry goes in France about the rise of the far right. The next presidential election isn't until 2027, but already the conversation is turning to the possibility of a far-right victory, either Le Pen or someone else. And it is far from impossible. Marine Le Pen has been the second-place candidate in both of the recent presidential elections, and she commanded 41% of the vote in the second round of the 2022 election. So yeah, the the French government is worried. Um, It's recently introduced bills on subjects like immigration rules, benefit fraud, medical tourism, areas that are the traditional talking point of the far right. And we're seeing French politicians really sort of engage with this issue in recent days. So I think it's fair to say that the government is worried. Uh, A lot of people in France are quite worried about the prospect of a far right government here. Indeed. I think this is a great time to bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield, who joined us again from Normandy. I asked John whether Macron or Bourne was right in the best way to tackle the far right and whether there was any inevitability about Marine Le Pen becoming the next president of France. He's right. He's also wrong, I think. I mean, what Elizabeth Bourne said is right. You know, I mean, the, the, uh, the origins of the what's now called the Rassemblement National, originally the Full National, were lots of rather unpleasant tribes. And, and one of the biggest was um, the sort of Vichy sympathisers or Vichy nostalgics. So he, she's quite right that it is the DNA of, of the Le Pen movement is, is actually that of, of Vichy to a large extent. But is Macron also right in saying that that doesn't mean much to people anymore, that the younger generations don't have the same kind of allergic reaction to the word Vichy and, and what happened during the war, that's also true. And therefore, he's probably right that the way to tackle her is to sort of point out the absurd contradictions in many of her policies. It seems to me, though, that you should do too. Where I thought he went a bit too far was saying that you shouldn't attack uh, the, the far right on moral grounds. It seems to me you can attack them on moral grounds, even though you don't necessarily have to refer to the history. You know, the, the sort of despite all her efforts since 2010 to, to clean things up, it's pretty clear that, you know, one of the, the core drivers of, of the people who joined the Rassemblement National, maybe not the people who vote for it, is, is race. You know, they are a racist party in, in, at their core. And I think that's the kind of thing that needs to be said. That is a moral argument rather than a political one. So, as always with Macron, he tends to kind of over-conceptualise things. I think he was trying to say, you know, I'm a hard-boiled politician and you attack people on politics. But in the end, I think you do have to attack a party like Le Pen's party on several grounds. And, and yes, on the incoherence of their policies, but also reminding people of their history and attacking their moral senses. Yes, all those things as well. I think it's also interesting he actually took on Elizabeth Bourne within the cabinet meeting, which is a rather strange thing for President due to his prime minister, and it does suggest that the prime minister, this prime minister, has not got long in this office. I suspect she'll be gone in September. John, when I speak to French people, particularly since the pensions crisis, you know, during which Macron was criticised for his handling of it, they seem quite resigned to the fact that Marine Le Pen is going to be the next president of France. Common political commentators have said similar things. Is that your view? Is you know, is it inevitable? No. 
It's not inevitable, and I think it's very unlikely. If Macron was able to run for a third term, and there is such this uh, partly understandable, partly hysterical force of hatred of Macron that's built up in the country, it would be, I think, difficult for him to win again. And therefore, you could, could give Le Pen a chance of winning, maybe. I think, though, it's difficult to know who, who she might be again the second against in the second round next time. I don't think she will be in the second round again, uh, I think pretty sure. But uh, I think almost anyone who's in the second round with her, except possibly Mélenchon, who doesn't seem to be wanting to run again, would have a very good chance of winning. And so I think anyone that can emerge in the centre or the centre-right would, would defeat her pretty easily. It's very difficult to, to predict an election so far ahead. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I remember that about this point in the last um, Macron term, people were saying the same kind of thing. At the time when Hollande was struggling and the, before Macron emerged, people were saying the same kind of thing. I think the French like to scare themselves with the idea of, of a far-right presidency. I think they were a long way off that, yeah. Interesting. Great. Thank you, John. Now, France is home to some 3.4 million second homes. That makes it the country in Europe with the most résidence secondaire. Emma, this stat intrigues me. Second home culture in France intrigues me. Tell us more about it. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? Um, Almost one in 10 properties in France is a second home. And around 20% of French people have a second property. Most of these are used as holiday homes, but some people rent them out for extra income. And it is interesting because in a lot of countries... Having a second home is really just the preserve of the very wealthy. And although clearly people who have a second property are not exactly on the breadline, plenty of French people of more modest means will have a second home or a holiday home. You'll find people who have, you know, perfectly ordinary jobs, nurses, teachers, not the super rich at all, who have a sort of extra property in the country. You'll often find that these are inherited family properties. French inheritance law means that children can't be disinherited. So a lot of people will have inherited a family property, often jointly with siblings. Um, So that's kind of a big reason why a lot of people have these extra homes. Of the holiday homes or the Maison Secondaire in France, around 90% of them are owned by French people. The other 320,000 are owned by people living in another country. And the biggest single group here is Brits. INSEE figures from 2016 record 86,000 Brits who have a second home in France. In terms, Emma, of where all these second homes are, if we break it down, 60% of them are on the coast or in the mountains. I'm looking at a map now which shows where all these second homes are. You can see in the Alps, you know, huge number of them in the Pyrenees, all the way around France's huge, long coastline. And there's also many uh, we know here in Paris. When it comes to the places in France with the most second homes, one village takes the title and it's called Germ. Emma, this village of Germ has 38 permanent residents and 670 second homes. Tell us about it. Yeah, I think it might actually be pronounced germ. Oh, come on. Although it's obviously more funny Better to say germ. germ. Let's, yeah. let's keep it as that. Um, it's in Haute-Pyrénées, down on the on the border with Spain. Uh, it's a ski resort, basically. That's why there are so many second homes there. Um, and yes, it sort of follows the trend of mountainous areas. Haute-Pyrénées is joined by all five of the Alpine départements in, in 2021 list of the places with the highest proportion of second homes to main residents. So it's the places in the Pyrenees, it's the places in the Alps, and there's a few coastal départements as well. So Var and Aude down the Mediterranean coast, Pyrenees Oriental also on the Mediterranean. Um, on the Atlantic coast, we have La Vendée and Charente-Maritime and the island of Corsica. So yeah, it's basically, as you said, it's mountains and seaside. Now, some 350 villages or communes in France have over 70% of their homes there are second homes. Now, the downside of this, Emma, I presume, is that sometimes locals 
struggle to find affordable housing? Yes, absolutely. An area in France with a housing shortage has a formal designation. It's called a zone tendue or a tent zone. And this is the designation that the government gives based on a ratio of available housing to population. And once an area gets this designation of zone tendue, local authorities can then choose to impose an extra tax on second homes, a, a surtax. And it's intended to fund more affordable housing for local people. It's done on a commune level. And there are about 200 communes where authorities have opted for this surtax, which can be levied at a rate of between 5% and 60% of the normal property tax, the tax d'habitation. There was a story recently of the mayor of Saint-Tropez have recently announced that they've gone for the maximum 60% property charge on second homes, because as you can imagine, the, the famously wealthy glitzy resort of Saint-Tropez is one area that really suffers from a shortage of affordable housing for local people because... All of the housing has been bought up by the, the super rich for Rim, Riviera properties. And in addition to this surcharge, second homeowners will from next year be the only group to continue to pay the tax d'habitation residency tax, which has gradually been phased out in France for principal residents. OK, now, while in most places, second homeowners are welcomed warmly, especially if they renovate derelict old properties and bring some life to the villages, there are some areas where they are not particularly welcome. We saw this during the first lockdown, I think, when there was a lot of angst when people were kind of heading to their second homes outside Paris. But Emma, are there stories of locals taking matters into their own hands and kind of, you know, vandalising second homes or anything? Yeah, I mean, I should stress this is rare. Most places, second homeowners will receive a warm welcome. But yeah, we are starting to see more sort of unofficial campaigns against second homeowners. So one example of this is the Pays Basque uh, on the, close to the border with Spain. Uh, the finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, he owns a second home in the Pays Basque. Um, and in this sense, he's a very typical French second homeowner because this is his family property. But obviously, he's now based in Paris for his job. He uses it for holidays. He's often posting pictures on Instagram of himself hiking in the Basque Country or, I don't know, posing in hiking kit anyway. But last summer, campaigners sort of broke into his property. They removed some of the tiles from his roof and they hoisted a banner calling for an increase on the second home surcharge. That 60% that we talked about earlier, they say is not enough. It's ineffective and they want the government to go even higher for that. Also last summer in Brittany, where there was a spate of vandalism targeted at second homes, the sort of graffiti tagging properties that were identified as second homes were tagged with messages including no more rich people, homes for locals. And in the Vosges, uh, the mountains of eastern France, they've seen an ongoing campaign of vandalism which is targeted at outdoor hot tubs. There's some kind of mysterious vigilante at work there who punctures outdoor hot tubs and pools with a drill and leaves a message reading, water is for drinking, you're massacring the Vosges, the planet is failing, wake up. So I mean, obviously this has an environmental aspect too, but it seems that so far the premises targeted have all been either second homes or holiday rentals. Jen, uh, you've been looking into this subject too. Part of the issue here, especially in these zone tendues or around France, is the shortage of new homes being built. Is that right? Yeah. So to add some context, we're talking about this as France has seen a sharp drop in new constructions. Even though tens of thousands of new builds are still being authorized, there has been a steady decrease of about 11.5% for building authorizations over the last year. And then also when it comes to constructing property in France, there are a few factors at play, like the high cost of building materials, a drop in the issuing of new permits, and access to mortgages. So to give an example of how much building costs have gone up by TF1, the French news channel found that the price to build a new house in the Vendée, for example, jumped from 135,000 euro in January 2020 to 165,000 euro in January 2023. 
And members of the construction industry have also been chalking some of the issue up to elected officials who are positioning themselves against the creation of new housing. So we've seen a rise in administrative appeals and petitions over noise from construction projects, visible cranes, equipment and stuff like that. And so it's made it less popular uh, to support the creation of new housing as well. Uh, Jen, you mentioned that a difficulty with accessing mortgages. There are some particular conditions specific to France, are there not, that can make this more difficult for first time buyers, for example, to get a mortgage? Yeah. So for those people that are looking to buy their first home or construct their first home, it is quite difficult to get a mortgage. France has very strict requirements. Uh, so in order to qualify, uh, your repayments, including insurance charges, cannot exceed 35% of your pre-tax income. And then loans are often set to a max of 25, sometimes 27 years in certain cases. And then between 2022 and 2023, what we've seen is that the number of loans granted fell by 31.9%. And according to France's central bank, the Banque de France, loan production reached its lowest level since 2015 in March 2023. Now, it's also worth noting that in the past year, interest rates in France have been on the rise. In October 2021, the average interest rate for a mortgage was around 1%, which was historically low. But now, as of May 2023, it was over 4%. And the gist is that people, especially first-time homebuyers, are finding it harder and harder to borrow with the constraints in place. France's Ministry of Economy said that they're aware of the issue and the country's financial oversight body is going to meet in June to decide whether or not they can loosen some of those standards to allow easier access to credit. But all of these factors combined have made it so that new home purchases and constructions have really slowed down quite a bit in France. And as of now, it doesn't look like that trend is going to be changing in the near future. I'm going to turn to John Litchfield now, who has a second home in Normandy. I asked John to explain second home culture in France and tell us whether he's experienced any resentment over the years from the local locals up there in Normandy. No, at all. No, it's actually interesting. I mean, just in this little hamlet where I live, where there are only about five or six inhabitable dwellings, for many years, our nearest nearest neighbours, Michel and, and Madeleine, they, they had a house in Caen, which is what, 30 kilometres, 40 kilometres away, and he worked in the Citroën factory there, and she, she was a cleaner. But every weekend and every holiday, they would come to their little house in this village. Then they retired and they came to live here full time. Another local couple I know who, who are also you know, not from wealthy background at all, they have a house not far from here, and they have a, a sort of mobile home, a big caravan on the coast in uh, Brittany. In any spare time they have, they go off down there and they fish off, off the coast near their little caravan. So they spend all their time sort of cleaning and mending the caravan, if you speak to them, rather than doing very much holiday life but they just like to have a, a second place that they go to. So these are not sort of long distance or grand uh, second homes, but a lot of French people, I think, possibly because property was cheap, possibly because the country is so big, possibly because of sort of family connections, you know, that people have second homes they've inherited from, from aunts, uncles, parents. Mm-hmm. It's quite a common phenomenon that people in France have a second place that they go to. And in terms of reaction, you know, second homeowners are often welcomed, especially when they renovate properties, as we've mentioned. But have you noticed any reaction over the years, kind of anti-second homeowners, you know, people, villagers who live there, as the, you know, in their principal residence who are angry that their, their neighbours' homes are empty for half the year round? <laughs> when we moved here 25 years ago, most of the reaction people we got was that, thank God you're not Parisians, although we came from Parisians. <laughs> They much preferred the idea that we were British and Irish than that we were prisons, because prisons have, a, perhaps unfairly, a very bad reputation yeah. of being very snooty, standoffish, yeah. you know, sort of complaining about everything, not really taking part in, in, in yeah. communities where they, they come to. I'm sure that's not true of all prisons. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think there is 
it depends on on the person. You know, I think people do resent it if if that is you know what they feel that the sec- that the people are sort of arrogant or or, or you know standoffish and, and don't don't seem to show any interest in the local community. But I think it, it, I've not really had any sense of resistance. Well, we I live here full time now, so it's no longer the case. But when we used to come out for weekends and holidays to this place. No, we've been we've been essentially very welcomed by everyone around here. There's not been um, that kind of reaction. Uh, you know, this is not a place where there are a lot of second homes and a lot of visitors. I think the problem is it's it's a question of mass, like all things. You know, when second homes take up large parts of a, of a kind of sought after seaside town or country area, push up the prices yeah. for local people that have to find somewhere to live, then you can see that a kind of anger builds up, and I can understand why. Right, moving on to our reader question. It's one that uh, I've often asked myself. Emma, I think you're going to clear this up for us. Do foreigners in France have to carry ID at all times? Yes, this is one of these things that foreigners are often told. But in fact, it's not a legal requirement to carry ID with you, although it is perhaps quite a good idea that could save you a lot of time. So... French citizens almost all have an ID card so that most French people do have ID on them so they can show ID if stopped by the police. So the, French, the police in France have a right to carry out what an ID check, what they call a contrôle d'identité, under a pretty broad range of circumstances. You, they don't need to have reasonable suspicion that you're engaged in criminal activity in order to stop you and ask you to show ID. Uh, likewise, if you're driving, they can pull you over for a vehicle check, a contrôle de routier, under the same auspices. The police themselves hotly deny this and the official colourblind policy of the French state means that there is no data to prove it either way but there is strong anecdotal evidence that these supposedly random checks happen a lot more to people of colour. Mm, they call these contrôle au facier uh, an ID check that is focused on the person's appearance such as their skin colour. What happens if you stopped and you don't have ID, Emma? Well, if you're stopped and you don't have ID, then the police can take you to a police station to prove your identity, although they're not actually supposed to hold you for more than four hours to prove ID. But even that can take a pretty serious chunk out of your day. If you refuse to cooperate with an ID check, a magistrate can then order you to be photographed and fingerprinted. And if you still refuse to cooperate with that, you risk a maximum fine of €3,750 and three months in prison. All of which to say is that it's quite a good idea to have some form of ID with you just in case. Officially accepted ID in France includes uh, a French ID card, obviously, a European identity card, a passport, a French carte de séjour residency card or a photo card driving licence. Okay, now the subject of ID cards have been in the news this week with a suggestion from the French government, or a minister at least, for an idea to merge the Carte Vitale health card with the French ID card. Emma, what's going on here? What's this story about? This was an interview that France's social security minister gave to a newspaper and he was talking about plans to crack down on benefit fraud. There were lots of different measures mentioned, but the one that really stuck out for me was this idea of linking up the French ID card to the carte vitale, which is the card you use to access the French health system. He gave pretty much no detail. This is one of these kind of broad brush interviews where a politician just wangs on for a bit. And we've asked for clarification. But the idea, as he outlined it, would pose quite a big problem for foreigners in France because the French French ID card is only available to French citizens. The carte vitale health card, on the other hand, is available to anyone who's lived in France for more than three months. And it's the card that shows that you're registered in the French health system and entitles you to state reimbursement for some or all of the cost of your health care. So things like appointments, treatments, prescriptions, stuff like that. 
making a French ID card a requirement for these would be a pretty big problem for the many thousands of foreigners who are perfectly legally resident in France and have a carte vitale, but who are not French and therefore don't have an ID card. As I said, it's very vague. We've asked for a lot more detail and we're quite a long way from any kind of change or anything like this because this was just one newspaper interview with one politician, but I guess we'll see. Indeed, you've asked for more details and we will update readers as soon as, or listeners as soon as we have them. You can keep an eye on this issue and, of course, all the subjects we've discussed on the local.fr. Guys, it's time for any life hacks or tips. Who's going to start us off this week? Jen, go for it. What's Nuit Blanche, Jen? So Nuit Blanche is a white night, but that basically means staying up all night or an all-nighter. And this is a super fun event in Paris, and it's taking place on Saturday, June 3rd. Uh, Some of the fun things that you can do are visit museums that have um, extended hours and might be free. So some of those museums are the Picasso Museum, the Pompidou Modern Art Museum, uh, La Bourse du Commerce. But then there are tons of things just happening around the capital. Apparently there are over 200 cultural activities and artistic exhibits planned throughout the city. Um, The one that I'm personally planning to go to is the... uh, Capital, that's all capitals, 60 years of urban and street art in Paris. And that's taking place at the Hôtel de Ville. Now, you do have to get tickets for it, but it's free. And it's going on starting at 6.30 p.m. And it's going to be super cool, showing a lot of work from prominent street artists. I'm super excited about it. But just generally, Nuit, Nuit Blanche is fun because... You just get to walk the streets of Paris. Everybody's out and about, like lots of activities to do. Mm, fantastic night. Excellent. I have seen the Capital Street Art Exhibition, by the way. It's fabulous. I, yeah, I highly recommend it. I really think you'll enjoy it. Have you guys heard of Neighbours Day? Nothing to do with the Australian soap opera? No, uh, no, I never talked about it. Shall I tell you about it? <laughs> well, that's the thing. In France, they have uh, Neighbours Day, Fête des Voisins, which this year is uh, actually on Friday, June the 2nd. It always takes me by surprise because you never quite hear about it. And then last year, I remember just coming back into our building and in the courtyard, literally the whole of the neighbours or all the block were out there drinking aperos, snacking and talking to each other, which is something, you know, that never really happens in blocks in Paris anyway. So it's really worth checking out. Keep an eye on whether your block or your street is holding a fête de voisin this year and make an effort. You get to talk to your neighbours once a year, at least. Anyway, Emma... What about you? Anything to recommend? Yeah, I mean, the, the big event in uh, in June, obviously, is the Fête de la Musique, but I talked about that last week. This is also Pride Month as well, so there's, like, parties all over France on different days. But actually, the thing I'm going to flag up is slightly less fun. Uh, it's just a reminder that we do have another pension strike next week. That is on June 6th. You might have thought that Hold this... Hold on, that's... That's finished. No, you might have thought it was finished, but it's not. It's back. It's returned like the monster at the end of the horror movie. What are we expecting here? Well, well, it's another uh, it's another mass strike day and demonstrations. Now, these kind of, as we saw through April through May, kind of got less effective as mm. time went on. But there will probably be disruptions on transport, particularly flights, trains, city public transport on June 6th and also demos in uh, in towns and cities across France. Right. Fine. Worth keeping an eye out there. I thought that had all finished, Emma. But no, pension strikes go on. June the 6th is the next one. Thank you, Emma. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, John, as well. And thanks to Reese Edwards, who produces this podcast. Uh, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks to all our listeners. Remember, please recommend us if you can. Leave a rating on whatever platform you listen to the podcast. It really does help us. And we'll be back with news, more news and talking points next week. <laughs>